From Chicago, welcome to Three Degrees Discussions. I'm your host, Mike Vasquez. This is a podcast devoted to the stories behind the innovators, entrepreneurs, and leaders in the industry. And so we had to save our pennies for the first year. So it was really hard to do. And uh, my dad had recently retired from IBM. And so he was kind of the finance guy. So he was the, uh, I was the sweat equity. He was the real equity, but we actually, we had, you know, beg, borrow and steal just to get that machine uh, because nobody knew. It's like, it's like, David, it looks cool. Who's going to buy it? That was David Lee. David has been involved in the 3D printing space for over 30 years. His background in materials started him down the path of AM, first through his work at DTM, and ultimately through the founding, growth, and sale of Harvest Technologies and early SLS Service Bureau. From there, he spent time at Stratasys, EOS, and 3D Systems, and has also found time to get his PhD in material science. Today, he shares some of those stories along with lessons learned having been involved in the 3D printing industry for those number of years. Before we get started, head over to www.3degreescompany.com and subscribe to the podcast. Remember, you can listen to the show anywhere you download your podcast, including Spotify, Apple, Amazon, or Stitcher. Also, if you or anyone in your company are looking for materials, qualification, or general added manufacturing support, reach out to the team through our website at, or via email at info at 3degreescompany.com. All right, David, thanks so much for joining. I'm excited for the conversation today. Um, I always start really early on with with these to get a, a sense of the person that that we're talking to so um where'd you grow up what was your early days like were you a tinker like what 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 kind of got you on the path to kind of starting your company and and being an additive yeah uh well mike th- thanks a lot thanks for uh inviting me to join and it's actually kind of um a weird symmetry in the way that i grew up and where i ended up so i'll say as a as a little kid um i you know, you play with things and and all that stuff, and usually it's stick in the backyard or football or whatever. My mom was a piano performance uh, major, so I had to sit in the piano and practice piano four and five years old. And I saw all my friends out running in the, in the yard, and it's like, so I quit piano pretty quick. So I wasn't going <laughs> to be one of those that kind of the bookworm that that sits inside. Uh, but but I, uh, my grandparents were farmers. And so we went out to the farm, but my dad had worked at, uh, got a job in the late 60s at IBM in Austin, uh, had worked in, uh, he was drafted or before he was drafted, he volunteered to serve the army at Aberdeen Proving Grounds. For those in additive, mm-hmm. we understand uh, there's a lot of additive there. So kind of army proving grounds and IBM in the early days. So my dad did manufacturing. Um, and so I was really fascinated. He would bring home parts of, of typewriters um, and I would get to mess with them. And then he would bring home early. It was a TI calculator. And so like calculators that you could program where you guess a number between one and a hundred and you see how fast you can guess it. And so those early computer games. And so this is in the seventies. And so I've just really found I like to do that, but um, he didn't want, want me to mess with anything real. So I started building models um, and I, I love building models and painting and and kind of just model making. And it was I was always getting those really big. And you remember those they pop off yep. and you kind of some were more complicated, had to do more. Some were fairly simple. They snapped on and then they had the decals and they were kind of pre-painted. You get a little so, woozy having the rubber cement out. A yeah, too, exactly. Too it's like, why do I have why do I feel lightheaded? And I didn't <laughs> think it was a good feeling. And so it's not like I would lock myself in the room and do that. Yeah. There's some of those you could you could buy and it smelled like fruit flavored. Yeah. 
yeah. whatever. Anyway, so <laughs> yeah, just all that kind of weird stuff. So anyway, so I was model making and and doing that as kind of one of and reading books and all the little things that kids do. And then junior high, my dad came home with the first PC. And so I'm sitting there working on a farm. So most of my farm days were, you know, 5 a.m. to to probably 2 because it got too hot in the afternoon. So I'd spend all afternoon and evening playing with a computer, but there were no games. There was no computer shop. There was no online anything. And so I just, all that came with it was word processing. Um, there was a spreadsheet, I think, I don't know, VisiCalc, I think is what their early days was that was now Excel. And at one point was Lotus 1, 2, 3. And so I didn't want to do word processing and I didn't understand all the calculation stuff. So I'd started programming in basic. So I just learned to program and program a lot of my own things. And so when I got into physics in high school, I would program like uh, you shoot a cannon and I'd make games, right? You shoot a cannon and it goes at an angle and it's a velocity and you put some random number generator that generates a little building out there and do you hit it or not? And so uh, just so when I went to college. Um, again, I'm, I've mentioned it several times farm uh, here in central Texas, north of Austin. He worked at IBM in Austin. And so he went from. Um, kind of, I don't know, assembling uh, typewriters to computers to then servers, you know, kind of went up the, 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 the ladder as IBM did and kind of exited the computer market. And so there was a roommate of my father's, his name was J.W. Kruger, and he was at TI here in Temple, um, which is north of Austin. And he went to be a pres, uh, 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 no, a VP of engineering for a new startup called DTM. And I was in the mechanical engineering department in Austin. And uh, my cousin said, hey, let's go check out D JW. They've got this new business. It's called DTM. It actually came out at UT. So Dr. Beeman was a professor of mine, Dr. Burrell, several of those. And DTM was the first SLS. They, they uh, BF Goodrich had licensed the technology from uh, UT, uh, started desktop man manufacturing, DTM, and it was SLS. And so I went to work as an intern. Before that, I'd worked at Dow Chemical. I'd kind of got into interning uh, and doing co-op student because I didn't want to work outside. I wanted to work in the air conditioning. And so, sorry, <laughs> farm, uh, I'm going to leave you behind. And so I did that. And what, what's interesting is when I got into that in the early days, there wasn't really any visual anything. Everything was, you had to kind of imagine what the file looked like because we didn't have the computing power to display in 3D. And so you would actually have to remember the right-hand rule to rotate parts. And so you'd, it's very much a spreadsheet, like this is the name of the file, here's the translation, here's the rotation, and you'd actually have to type all that stuff in wow. uh, to take the original file. So you could you could look at a, like a Silicon Graphics or something big computer that had the CAD file, um, or you could draw it out, but then you'd have to think about, okay, where do I need to put these? And so I, I, I found that... Um, the 3D printing was a perfect marriage between my computer programming and my model making. It was, it kind of, kind of scratched the itch for both. And so when I started working there in materials development, because it had tied to Dow Chemical, um, I'm doing CAD like I'd done at Texas Instruments. Uh, the DTM was my third co-op job. And so in 1990, I started there and have never looked back. I've I've stayed with 3D printing uh, since 1990. So one of the early, uh, not the first. So I wasn't the inventor of the technology, but I was working in the same room as the inventors uh, most of the time. So uh, working at DTM, I, I helped in field service. So we installed um, uh, machines at different locations. And so when you go to Pratt & Whitney and 
uh, you're hanging out and uh, you meet Dick Aubin for the first time. And he's a, a, a one of the early adopters, kind of the father of the rapid uh, SME rapid and SME um, used to be, I guess, RP and rapid prototyping association. Uh, so you get to see all those folks and also see all the beta machines. So when the first FDM, I, I, now I'm random walk, but I remember going into G uh, General Motors Tech Center in Warren, uh, Michigan, and they had this new machine that they were complaining about. And it was the first Stratasys machine. And it had this little nozzle, kind of like a hot glue gun, and it would build the part. But a lot of times when the when it would go to home, it would still be adhered to the part and it would pull the part <laughs> off of the platform. And so because over time that the the head would just get these goobers all over it. And so the guy that was there said, well, look what I did. And so he brought in a toothbrush from home and he duct taped it to the side and he created an, an STL file of just a circle and he put parameters to where it wouldn't extrude. It would just go and, and basically uh, kind of brush itself over. So every layer, every time it would extrude on the part and it would go over without extruding and basically brush the bristles off, uh, the little goobers off. And so you just get to see that from the yeah. beginning. It's been a really wild ride to see uh, how the, the whole world kind of evolved in the additive space. But anyway, so that's the yeah. background of how I got into it. What was it like seeing kind of the first SLS system or like one of the first SLS? Like, what did you think when you first saw it? You work well. What's what? Here's what's amazing is the first SLA. So the SLA one and the SLA two fifty. We had a there's a service bureau in San Leandro, California, guy named Frost Prelo who who had it. He was one of the first service bureaus, um, and they he was tied to investment casting. And so he had one of the first SLA 250s or SLA 1. So he had that. He also got the DTM machine. So we had SLA and SLS in that location. And so I remember, you know, backing up, just looking into the SLS machine the first time. It, neither one of those technologies have changed appreciably. Right. I they, they're, they, they look the same. They're the same mechanics. It's not like we've gone from, you know, uh, I don't know, um, uh, steam cars to electric cars to gas gas cars back to electric cars like we've not seen that same evolution uh in this so the first time seeing it and realizing what it was doing was really amazing and i i tell you what the i had design was one of my focus areas uh in mechanic uh, i've got a bachelor got a bachelor master's and phd uh, from UH, UT, University of Texas at Austin. But my bachelor's was focused on design. And the first time that I actually made something virtually, translated that over to uh, the machine and actually printed it out, it was like it was like better than uh, <laughs> role-playing games, right? You put yourself in Dungeons and Dragons and all these role-playing games where you have the, you're used to living in this virtual world. Um, and then you actually see this machine that can take that virtual to real. I mean, it was really for a, kind of a, a, a early, a, I won't say I'm a digital native, but I started working with computers in like uh, junior high. So it's pretty close uh, to, to that. To, but this is one of those kind of things that makes it tangible. So it was fascinating. And then um, the other technologies like the what Desktop Metal and X1 does, uh, where it's the binder jetting, uh, we saw that at Sandia National Labs. That was real early off of a... Um, a patent from MIT. So you see that, you see the investment casting opportunities. The The more fascinating part, I think, was working in the DTM Service Bureau. As you can imagine, in the early days, these machines were like half million dollar machines. Honestly, they're still half million dollar machines. Yeah. <laughs> but at the time, they were half million dollar machines that worked on Unix. 
and uh, and it was twenty five to fifty thousand dollars for the computer that could run the CAD. Um, but it was fascinating is is um, we had to make a lot of parts to sell to people to sell them the technology. So you had to just build the whole ecosystem. People were still designing with computer aided drafting, not design, you know, so it was actually 2D. Uh, there was not a lot of 3D design. And so we had to make a take and translate drawings into CAD and that CAD to STL files and print them. And so, but but seeing some of the stuff like in the early days, uh, doing engine parts for John Deere or the cool stuff was we were working with the FBI on several things. And it's been long enough. I, I think the statute of limitations is probably gone, but they had done reverse engineers to make masks. So you can make these masks of people where they could actually look and appear. It's kind of very missions in, mission impossible. Like you look like somebody at a distance because they had uh, just taken uh, their pictures and made a mask of someone or taking an electronic. I remember we were doing a telephone back when you still had them on your desk or on the wall um, and you we could open the door. So we would pause the build, open the door, brush off the thing and put this electronic device in the phone and then we would continue to build it. And so it was embedded. And so making bugs uh, in that way and embedding it. So those were the fun things. It's really, it wasn't the technology itself. It was seeing the really cool applications that the technology uh, enabled. And so as you kind of, you, you've, you started at DTM as an intern and you said you worked in, you helped install, you were yep. at the service bureau, kind of what, what yep. was the next step after, after that? Or how long did you stay? Kind of what was. Yeah. So your... I started in, I started in 90. Uh, we went uh, pre-commercialization for two years. We were still, uh, scanners were not calibrated. Uh, we didn't know how to calibrate scanners and lasers. How do you make it go faster? We started realizing that if you have a circle, a donut with a hole and it's scanning, it's really slow. But if you cut that STL file in half and it scans one half and the other half, it's really fast. So we learned scanning strategies. We learned uh, mechanical properties. We learned how to calibrate things. So the first couple of years was really kind of building that foundation of process control. And we realized there's kind of three legs to that. It's design, like features can be too small or too fat. Um, and so you can hollow things out. So we learn just, you know, how do you modify the design for additive? How do you uh, mod mod uh, modify materials? Or are there materials already out there that can work in additive? Because not all of them can. The assu assumption is you just have a plastic, you just throw it in a machine. Mm -hmm. It should work. It's not that simple. Uh, and then the, the third element is actually the process control. Uh, early days was laser was a dial. Um, heater was a dial. Uh, didn't always even have a readout. Uh, you didn't even know what the laser power was. Just have a that Sharpie, was, like keep it here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the thing is, is every every machine was different. Every part was different. And so um, so I, I started for the first two years doing that. The next year, we took the service bureau and we sold it because we were competing with customers, we being DTM. We were competing with customers and we felt that what we need to do is, is sell the service bureau off, let them build the parts for people, and DTM would make the materials, the machines, and process controls for that. And so they just separated that off. Well, I was tired of traveling, so I went with the service bureau. I worked with the DTM service bureau for a year, really learned more about how do you need to manage your material and your recyclability? That makes a difference. Um, how do you get uh, statistical process control? How do you repeat things the same time? And so really setting up a database structure in the background that you could remember, okay, this person, they wanted their Wheaties this way, and this person wants their Wheaties that way. Well, how do you remember? And so just setting up, really learning SQL, again, back to that programming. And in 95, I left and started a service bureau because I really saw that there was 
there needs there's an art to the part i don't know we we've always kind of said that there's an art to the part so making stuff in 3d systems and in 3d printing is not the easiest thing to do uh and repeat it and so that's one of probably the biggest hurdle that we could still fight is that there's still not enough closed loop control in the system to make it homeworthy. It's not just push button. There takes a, there's an ecosystem that has to go with it. So I started a service bureau with that in mind is I'm going to really focus not on concept models, but on production. I, I really, I saw a vision uh, that was kind of cast in the DTM days that somebody would have 500 of these machines making real parts for people. And I saw a lot of the limitations in materials and process control. And so I, I'd set out to start a service bureau that did functional prototypes and production. So workable drill, like a, a, a Ryobi or Black & Decker or whoever it is, right? Some of those companies uh, we would work with and we would make these parts that were actually, you could drill and tap, you could drop them on the ground, you could you could actually work with them. Um, and so that's when I when I started the service bureau. And within about a year or two, and I'd, I'd installed a machine at Rocketdyne. There's a gal, Retha Williams. She's one of the kind of the greats of early days of, of 3D printing. She was at Rocketdyne. Um, and um, we had built, we, DTM um, and Rocketdyne with SLS had built parts for the space shuttle. And so I was still working at DTM at that time. Uh, Roger Spielman is another guy that's been in the industry quite a bit on and off. Um, and so they had taken that kind of success of making stuff for the space shuttle. By the way, that's not what failed. <laughs> it was an yeah. O-ring failed uh, <laughs> that doomed that. But uh, this was just another part. It was a sacrificial part, but was used. Um, they they needed to do some uh, filming on some devices. And so they made a housing for an F-15 out of glass-filled nylon using a DTM machine. And it survived. And they're like, this is really cool. And so Rocketdyne had been acquired by Boeing. So they really started looking at, we could actually do real parts. Like we could actually not just prototype, but we could manufacture using this. And so I, at, as a service bureau, I worked with, uh, with Rocketdyne slash Boeing um, and DTM and Navair. Uh, and they developed the spec, I think it's PS14295. I think that's the number. It was the spec that allowed for a, a, a nylon material to be processed in an SLS machine to make parts for the F-18. And those were the first production grade parts. And so that's kind of where, where my roots are. And so that's that was my whole goal. Um, uh, fast forward, operated that service bureau, started with me and one machine for 18 months before I really hired anybody else. And so- How did you get the, like, like, what was the process of like getting that first machine? Like, did you like have to like write a business well, plan and go to a bank, get a yeah, loan? Like, so did that's, you, a, like... that's a whole long story. Okay, I'm going to answer that. I'm going to finish the <laughs> yeah. bookend. So yeah. operated the service bureau for about 20 years. At the end of 20 years, 50% of our revenue was end use parts production. So actual production, not just prototypes. Half of it was, you know, design aids and going towards that. But yeah, so, so but to get into this business, um, it was amazing. So we went to a guy, Charlie Norton, who leased machines. He had leased several machines and he looked at us and he's like, you know, you're a one man show. Sorry, David, I hate to tell you that if there's a lot of people out there that's smarter than you that have more resources, you're not going to make it. So Charlie said no. And so I went to the local bank, the bank, two or three banks said no. 
we didn't have the money. It was like $300,000 to buy this machine, 300 and something thousand. And that doesn't account for salaries and right. everything. I still remember. I saw the business plan in a spreadsheet from way back when, but I needed about $18,000 a month uh, to do that. I didn't have 18. I was 27. Uh, I didn't have $18,000 a month to burn. Um, I didn't have, you know, 300,000 plus another 150,000 capitalization. So we finally got a friend of ours who ran a, mach a machine shop who believed in us, who basically took the loan on his business. He had the cash flow in his business to pay for it if needed. So he came in as a 50% partner. He co-signed the note. We went with the bank. They then allowed us to get the loan. And John Murchison, who was the CEO at the time, we had a good relationship. And they basically gave us a 10% discount on the machine that they would charge us at the end of a year. So, hey, we would only have to come up with 10% cash, so roughly $30,000. And in the end of the year, we owed DTM another $30,000. So that got us to 20% yeah. down. So we only were able to borrow 80%. And so we had to save our pennies for the first year. So it was really hard to do. And uh, my dad had recently retired from IBM. And so he was kind of the finance guy. So he was the, uh, I was the sweat equity. He was the real equity. But we actually, we had, you know, beg, borrow and steal just to get that machine uh, because nobody knew. It's like, it's like, David, it looks cool. Who's going to buy it? Yeah. Like if you don't, if it doesn't work, <clears throat> who's got, we don't know this business. It's a business plan. It could be bad. It could be good. We don't know. And so there was a lot of people that put a lot of faith in that in the early days. Yeah. And then, so on the flip side, kind of what was the thinking on, on selling the business and kind of exiting it? So again, going back, his name was Mark Elliott. Mark Elliott uh, had the machine shop and he told me a couple of things. He said, David, number one, the business is an asset. It's not you. It's not some pet. It's not a family member. It's an asset. So realize that it's an asset that is there for you to sell or to use, right? So number one, it's an asset. Number two, the only way it's ever going to be any worth is if it's not tied to you. So you need to build processes and things in this in, in your business so that it can operate independent of you. Because if you're shackled to that, you know, if they it's it's the old Roman uh, slave ships, right? They're shackled to the seats. If you're shackled to that seat, you're never getting rid of that. It's not an asset. It's just a big boat anchor around your around your ankle. And so that's that's the other thing is he told us, you know, hey, it's an asset. Number one, number two is it needs to be separated. So I worked really hard to, uh, and I've, I've told people that I've worked with, I believe in managing processes, not managing people. And so I've just put in a lot of processes, uh, you know, again, built everything in a SQL database um, where, you know, time and date stamp everything, uh, all of your workflow. So all the quality systems we ended up building were all part of this kind of wizard. Like you couldn't, you couldn't go to step three unless you did step two. And one of those steps is tied to an employee database that are you qualified to do this operation? And if you're not in the database, then the system won't let you do that operation. So we just kind of built that and part and not, and again, unbeknownst to us, that was the core value of what we had. We had an A, we were able to get AS9100 certified in about six months from when we started to when we ended because our, our, all of our systems were already kind of not qualified, but they were compliant with uh, the quality systems. My father, again, manufacturing engineer at IBM, had been in the early days. They called it total quality management before it kind of moved into more lean and 
all of that stuff. And so we had done that. And so um, I realized at some point that I'm going to need to sell this, but it was, it's family. I mean, the people that work there, the business, your identity as that business owner. So I had to probably work two or three years to kind of come to the point that I could divorce myself enough from the business that we could operate, right? Okay, we've we've done all the preparations, we've separated enough things, there are enough of that. And so one uh back when Stratasys was $130 a share or close to it, it's over a hundred. Uh, D, uh, DTM had been acquired by 3D Systems in 2001. And so this is around 12, 13, 14. The hype cycle hit. Um, it was uh, Economist Magazine, I think. Uh, it put yep. me a Stratavarius. Yeah. And when it hit me, that was the one. I think I, I tie that one article on the page that, in, that really everybody kind of got jazzed and understood. And then the phrase 3D printing uh, which kind of came out of a standards committee about the same time it took hold. So 3D printing, print me a Stradivarius. And so all of a sudden, uh, these public companies who'd been struggling to be profitable, they had great currency. There was a lot of acquisitions. I mean, we can go through all of those acquisitions, but from 2008 to 2016, there were hundreds, I think hundreds of companies that were acquired um, by different organizations. And so uh, Stratasys came and knocked on our door said, we'd like to talk to you about a business proposition. Would you meet us at MakerBot headquarters um, up in uh, Brooklyn? And it's like, yeah. And I didn't know what, it, I mean, I was just so naive. I didn't even know what they were going to ask me to do. And when I got there, they said, hey, we want to talk to you about acquiring your business. Um, and they acquired uh, Solid Concepts, uh, which was Joe Allison's company out of Southern California. He had an office, he had several offices, but his main office was there. He had a small office in Austin. Uh, we He was really broad technology, a lot of 3D printing, uh, tooling, soft tooling, investment casting, uh, all of those types of things, uh, even, you know, outsourced to other countries for for a lot of CNC and, and injection molding. Uh, Red Eye was part of Stratasys. It was the FDM Service Bureau. And again, they had a, a good quote engine uh, that was part of that. And so because of that, they saw that uh, our company would fill in the gap of manufacturing, qualified manufacturing. Uh, at the same time, it started talking to a couple others. Uh, they and so the, the of course the price kept going up. Most of my colleagues and friends that were in the same place, we had kind of seen each other at AMUG, which is the users group for additive manufacturing. Uh, so it was like I think the 3D Systems U North American Stereolithography Users Group, I think was the name of it at the time. But a lot of those, pretty much everybody was selling, and I'd also learned being from Texas. Uh, you, in, if you're in, in West Texas on the oil patch, you don't want to be the first one to sell because it's going to be the cheapest and you're not going to, you don't want to be the last one to sell because they don't need you anymore. They'll just pump the oil out from underneath your ground without having to buy it. And so you gotta, you gotta maximize. And so I realized that the time, and so it was just, it, it just, I, I would I just have to say gut. It's like, it's the time. If I'm going to sell, this is the time to do it. And so in 2013, 14, uh, we sold to Stratasys. Yep. So the the old adage, hogs get fat, pigs get slaughtered, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yep. <laughs> nice. Exactly. Yep. Right. Yep. Absolutely. And so after that, um, you, you ended up staying in the industry, kind of kind of what has been life after the service bureau? What what is that? Yeah. So what what's really interesting is being basically a cust well, being an innovator on the early days being a customer in the middle and then kind of where I've landed more in R&D at the end um, has been really interesting because 
Um, at the same time that we're seeing evolution in manufacturing and culture and, and all of this stuff, um, this book Scrum came out after 9-11. Um, a lot of the, and I'll, I'll get there. It's this has nothing to do with 9/11, but Scrum came out because of all the dysfunction in, in developing uh, software platforms. Is um, you know you put these kind of waterfall product development mechanisms, and you plan everything before you go, and then you go and you hit things that weren't planned, and things just end up taking really long, and all of that stuff. And so this whole new agile product development methodology was coming out at the same time that I just sold, sold the service bureau. I went in at Stratasys and uh, the, my title was senior VP of emerging technologies. So I had two roles. One was to evaluate technologies that were being developed externally um, and potential for acquisition. So I was kind of do, did due diligence with business development, looked at those emerging technologies, but also gave advice internally on the technologies uh, to kind of with product to make sure that the roadmap was right. And so part of agile product development is you need a user in the middle of it, right? Everything that you develop needs to be around a use case and a user. And having sat where I did for 20 years, I was really, I, I had strong empathy for the use cases because I had been a user. Now we didn't develop our own, but we worked with engineers from, I don't know, um, uh, entertainment companies that are making an uh, an Iron Man costume uh, to somebody who's a controller on a John Deere tractor, right? All kinds of things. And so we always consulted with engineers. And so I found that being that user really gave me a unique uh, place between the product teams and the engineering teams. Because I understood the technologies and the controls and what's important and how it works. I also understood the customer. And so I found myself there uh, in the middle um, and and one of the technologies we were developing at Stratasys was metals. Uh, so similar to what Velo 3D is doing, kind of focusing on the the transformational elements of the printer, like uh, intelligence and scanning and, you know, data collection and all those things that a lot of people kind of ignore. Uh, but it's the stuff that kind of <laughs> potentially will take manufacturing to the next level. So we were work working on that. Uh, we had a couple of, as you can imagine, when stock goes from 130 to 18, uh, you see some changes at the senior executive level. And so I found myself um, without a technology boss. I was reporting directly to the new CEO um, and they decided, hey, metals is not in our wheelhouse. That's not what we want to be. Uh, we sell through resellers. And so Stratasys decided to spin the metals team off. So I left there. Um, and so uh, and then it was acquired by EOS and I was working there um, and their chief technology officer had left and Marie Longer had come in on board. And I'd known the Longers for a long time. Um, and so uh, I, I just saw that um, Marie's a, a great soul and uh, she's really good for the company, but she didn't come in as a PhD in technology. Uh, she, she understands the business. She understands the family. She understands the industry, but she wasn't uh, strong uh, on the technical side. So I offered, I said, hey, if you need somebody in the interim to help out on the technology side, I could be an interim uh, technology. So I became the chief technology officer there at EOS. Um, and just kind of help them with, uh, you know, just making sure we were, you know, the smell test and the sniff test and the taste test to make sure this stuff was going to gonna go. And so I found myself in the role of chief technology officer at EOS. And then uh, eventually uh, during COVID, traveling to Germany was hard on the soul. Uh, and so ended up uh, going to 3D systems here um, in the U.S. 
and have worked with them for about a year and a half. And so, uh, but that's kind of where my role was. And I, again, I think the, I attribute that as, as I've got a fairly strong technical background, I've got a lot of experience, uh, but I think the key element is just that user experience and bringing that into the technology. Cause the number one complaint of users of this technology is the people designing these cars don't know how to drive them. Uh, and so uh, getting a driver on board, there's a movie we were talking about earlier, Ford versus Ferrari. It shows a, a perfect balance of taking a Carroll Shelby and his kind of mechanic guy who understands how to drive cars, working with a strong Ford design team. You can actually do some really good things if you marry those two to, to get two together. Many times we kill the the innovation of the the, the technologist with this overwhelming engineering process map right it's just it's just overwhelming bureaucracy but so many times we take these little small companies thinking they can do everything but they don't document stuff they don't have the rigor that you need for strong engineering so balancing those two has been uh, kind of what i've been working on for the last four or five years and as well i mean you've got a background where you've done software or you grew up early days of software Yep. The mechanical background and the materials background. I mean, yep. like in additive, I mean, that's like, there aren't too many people that, that have that. Right. Yeah. And, that's you, run, right. and you run a business as well. So like that is yeah. like the business side often also gets like, it's, there's a brick wall, right? Like you were saying, like, okay, yeah. either technical or business. Right. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that, uh, you know, when I was at 3d systems, I, one of the things that dawned on, and when I talked to them about joining is, um, 3D Systems has a relatively new management staff. We're talking like less than two years old. During COVID, uh, the new management staff came in. And so they didn't really, they understand business. They didn't understand the technology. Here I'm at the executive level. I can actually run a machine. I mean, how many executives <laughs> can actually get out there and run a machine? So it's a different, uh, it's a different take. And, and you're right. It's, it's rare that you get uh, uh, that, that combination. I, I will say there's benefits and there's detractors. Um, we a lot of times we say the jack of all trades, the master of none. Uh, mm -hmm. So when you when you're kind of in all of it, um, there's always going to be somebody more understanding in materials, a better controls program, right? Another somebody who's more intimate with the customers. Uh, but um, in special forces, when you're dealing with small teams, typically they say the best teams are the generalists. They're the they're the a group of people that are good at a lot of things. And I think generalists are the ones that are able to ultimately long lasting can survive because a generalist can go from a chemical company to a battery company because they understand the underlying elements. But a, a petroleum engineer doesn't become a battery engineer overnight. You know, they may have the capacity and the aptitude. But yeah, it's it's been interesting to kind of sit in that kind of in that cog. Yeah. And more of a reflective question on, on your career. I mean, what as you think about kind of people entering, just starting their, their additive career or kind of in engineering, like what's one or two pieces of advice like that you would give them, like based on your own career and learning, like you've been in big companies, you've started your own company, you've yeah. been on the technical side, business side, but. Well, I think, you know, and, and some of this gets into like art of war, like know thyself, right? So number one is you really need to have an understanding of what you like and what you don't like. I've got two semi-adult sons. They're in their 20s. They're just uh, kind of starting their careers and and they didn't know what they wanted to do. So I just started asking simple questions. Do you want to work outside or inside? Right. Do you want to work with your hands or with your brain? Right. Just let's start with just general questions and get you at least in a neighborhood that, OK, these are these are some things that you could do. So I think number one is you have to know yourself. 
Um, I think another one is um, you don't really know yourself until you're probably, I mean, really know yourself. Um, I, don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to ask you how old you are, but you get into your thirties, get start approaching 40 at that point, you better know yourself. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that, that you just have to kind of look at, at who you are and what the opportunities are. Um, there was a micro um, is a guy, he's dirty jobs. He does a yep. lot of, my son discovery. loves it. <laughs> oh yeah. And, and so one of his first dirty jobs was this guy who had a uh, septic cleaning business, which was just nasty. And it's like, why in the world would you do that? And the guy's like, Hey, I don't remember the guy's name, but like, Hey, a lot of people have these posters on their walls, these motivational po posters. that will say, follow your passion. It'll be a guy fly fishing on a lake high in the mountains. And it's just ideal. It's like, but the only way you can do that is either you're homeless or you're independently wealthy. Nobody else can do that. So he says, so I followed the opportunity and took my passion with me. So I think that's the second thing is follow the opportunity, take your passion with you. So that's the second thing. But I will say, I've been thinking about this. Somebody asked this question about calling and it's kind of more of a, a metaphor. I don't know. It's not a metaphor, but, but we all have a calling, right? There's like this kind of thought that in the grand cosmos that I'm so I'm the only puzzle piece that's fits. And I don't think that that's really accurate because we can change over time. But as I thought about calling, it's kind of the thing that bridges our past to the future and we're intersecting that arc. So it's an arc. And if you don't have a past and I'll, I'll we, I just went to a funeral not to get down, but I just went to a funeral to of a friend who'd had Alzheimer's. And so they'd lost their past. They had no memory. Um, it, it's you're lost, you're untethered. Um, and then I've also known people, a lot of young people, especially during COVID, that they they know their past. Maybe they don't like it. Um, and they're just as confused about their future. So they're anchored where they are today, but there's no direction at all. So I think if you get untethered in either either way, either you lose sight of where you want to go or you've lost sight of where you've come or where you've come from, that you're lost. I think really anchoring on a calling like what I mean, what is the, what's the thing that I want to do? you know, that I have a passion to do. And so I'll say that just kind of more uh, philosophical, that that's where we all need to find ourselves is where are we on that arc? And are we maintaining that? Are we going in a direction? Or are we just randomly following crumbs in the, in the, in the woods, Hansel and Gretel like, um, but specifically an additive. Um, if we think about opportunities, there are a ton of opportunities. Um, you know, there's opportunities in, in software, in material science, in applications, uh, just a couple of things. 3D Systems is doing some stuff with bioprinting where they're cellularizing, they're building scaffolding and actually putting living tissue with that and, and hoping to grow uh, cellularized organs, uh, which is brand new. So there's a lot of bio uh, space in there. When we start looking at what aerospace and space is doing, uh, it's uh, kind of structures. So these new almost artificial intelligence kind of design to think about designing a lung or designing a structure that's that's just featherweight but super strong it takes more than just what one human can do there's like machine learning uh, elements and a lot of mathematical mathematical things that you have to do so there's a ton of opportunities um and also manufacturing um we have found and I, it was a wall street journal article i think that talked about uh, the experiment of china uh, manufacturing has gone awry 
right? So de depending on one country to manufacture everything for the world is not good. So there's a lot of reshoring opportunities in Europe and the U.S. to where we're going to start putting manufacturing back. And I don't think that we're going to build manufacturing on the old foundation. I think additive and the kind of uh, digital um, is going to be the foundation for the next manufacturing. Whether we use additive manufacturing or not, we're going to use data. We're going to use machine learning. We're, there's a lot of things that are going to augment what we do. So there's a great opportunity in advanced manufacturing for this generation. And so last question as we, we wrap up, um, is there a uh, particular book or uh, some written written word or or book that has influenced your career or that you kind of take with you as you you think about kind of what you've learned in 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 business and and an additive oh man that's a good question because i am i'm a lifelong learner i just uh so the book i'm reading right now is um uh, the killers of a flower moon it's about really the birth of the fbi in oklahoma it's a really fascinating book on humanity the one i re read before that i reread it was hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy yeah. um and so hitchhiker's guide is great uh, there's one fa there's what i don't want to give the plot away but there's there's one element there's a um a, a a planet of beings that their job is to make planets, right? So they're the creators and uh, they're so expensive that the economy has been down and they've been hibernating for 500 million years. Uh, and so they, the, the, the word of wisdom is when you see a, um, uh, a recession coming, just go hibernate, don't spend money, hibernate and then come back afterwards, which I found it fascinating as I'm in the middle of what we're doing. But as far as uh, kind of formative books more recently, uh, there's two books that I think are really good for goal-oriented people. The One Thing um, and Four Disciplines of Execution. Those are really good. Um, uh, so I would say those are as far as just kind of finding your way. One of the best finance books is The Millionaire Next Door. It really talks about um, how you use your resources, not how you spend your resources. Uh, those are good. I mean, there's always some kind of more philosophical, spiritual type things. There's a book that I, it's called, um, imagine, no, not imagineering, visioneering. It's a visioneering. It's a book. It's kind of built on, uh, the story of this, uh, guy back in, uh, Hebrew times when they were in exile about this Nehemiah that went back and rebuilt Jerusalem. And it's just, it's kind of a fascinating story about how you imagine where the future can be and how do you work towards that? So that one was kind of a, kind of off the beaten path. Uh, but there's a, there's a ton of books, but I would say right now, it's probably the one thing is the one thing that's probably this, it's a simple read. Uh, it's pretty quick, but uh, yeah. Right on. Well, David, thank you so much for joining the show today. Thank um, you. Excited to, to see what's next. Yeah, absolutely. And I uh, look forward to seeing you at the next conference. Sounds good.